Well, good morning. From Battle Hymn of the Republic to doxology to raisin cakes, and here we are. <laughs> you know, fun, fun thing about that video is nobody knew what each other was saying. We were alone when we recorded it. Nobody knew afterwards what the other had said. So nobody knew they were going to sing. Like each person's kind of sang on their own, and I didn't learn that song growing up, so I had to get creative. And I didn't realize that they were going to take what I said and put it on a video for everybody to hear each week for like five weeks. <laughs> So, we are in our uh, series, insert catchy title here. Glad to be here. My name is Chad Myers, and I'm our adult discipleship director. Uh, glad to see you in the room. Welcome to those of you joining us online. Maybe you're away for this holiday weekend. Happy Fourth of July weekend, everybody. And uh, glad to be together in worship. I, I got my um, red and white stars and blue patch on. Just, just for you guys. And Jeff looked really great in his blue shirt and his blue coat. That, when we stand next to each other, we make a good American outfit, I think. So uh, grateful to Mount Horeb's leadership. I'm very grateful to Jeff, uh, Pastor Jeff. We have a, a great senior leader, and I'm thankful for him and all that he has done for this church and our family. I'm, we are glad to be back. We are glad to be here with this church for such a time as this. Um, and to get to know you all more and see what God is up to. Um, so we are in this series, and you're supposed to come up with a catchy title, and my title of my talk today is Learning to Lament. Learning to Lament. I don't know if it's catchy, but it's a title nonetheless. And I joked with our 9 o'clock service that we had had this great morning of worship with brass and trumpets, and it was big and boisterous and celebratory, and then I'm going to come in with a little Debbie Downer like, wah, wah. we're talking about sorrow, wah, wah. but I was reminded in, in between services, I said, people are probably expecting we're going to talk about freedom or this or that, and uh, a good friend said, well, soon to be a good friend, acquaintance to be a good friend, um, said, but you're talking about freedom. You're talking about freedom of the heart. You're talking about a spiritual freedom, and that is what I would like to talk about today, and I appreciate that framework, um, especially because it's something we don't like to talk about typically. Dr. Bill said last week that sometimes when we preach, we don't like to make people uncomfortable, and I think that could be true, but we often have to talk about uncomfortable things, and as far as I understand how spiritual growth happens, it's usually by leaning into the uncomfortable things, not just the comfortable thing. So let's pray and let's dive in together. Father, thank you for this weekend where we celebrate and we see family and we remember and we're grateful for those who have served and do serve our country for the freedoms that we have. Um, Father, we are so humbled that we have clean water to drink that we have cold air in our houses in the summer and warm air in the winter. We're so grateful uh, for who you are and how you've put us right here for such a time as this, to be a light and a city and salt. And so we're so grateful that you are molding us to be more like your son and more like ourselves. Speak to us today. You know exactly how each of us needs to hear it. So illuminate your scripture and open up our hearts. May Jesus be the center and may he get the credit. Amen. Learning to lament. 
One of our daughters was in a program called Girls on the Run at her school, and she would stay after school several times a week with a group of girls, and guess what they would do? Yes, they would run, hence girls on the run. And this particular one, they sat down and they ran, but then they would talk about certain things. So they would talk about some type of life skill often. And I really appreciated that. It was a good conversation starter. So I picked her up from school and I said, hey, how was girls on the run? And she said, it was great. And I said, well, what did y'all talk about today? And she said, well, we talked about emotions. And I said, well, that's very interesting. I'm intrigued about how you talked about emotions. What was the energy around it? Like, what did you talk about? And she said, well, I really liked how they framed it. They framed emotions like this. There are comfortable emotions, which we like to experience and we like to feel, and there are uncomfortable emotions, which we don't like to experience and we don't like to feel. And I thought to myself, I really appreciate that framework. Because so often, especially sometimes growing up in the church and Christianity, we want to talk about emotions, but we talk about them as good or bad, and we talk about them as right or wrong, but emotions are neutral. And I loved the way that that framework, it really helped me get a picture of, oh, there's comfortable emotions, things I like to feel, and there's uncomfortable feelings, things I'd rather push away. And what they were trying to do was get a more whole picture of the human heart. And I wonder if in the church, that conversation might actually help us grow to be more whole people. Because I often find that in the church, sometimes we're the best at it, at saying these are really great emotions and things we want to feel like joy and happiness and and peace and praise. Let's come and let's all feel those together. Isn't this great? Isn't God great? But what do we do with the darker side of the experiences of our heart, the sorrow and the pain, and the grief, and the anguish, and the loss, and the wrestling. And I'm concerned that we have maybe unintentionally put a a pretty wide chasm in the human heart and said, these things are great. If you're a Christian, you should experience and feel these things. And these things over here, though, man, something may be wrong with you. You better work hard and pray a lot so that you can come back to experiencing these things. If only... If only there were something in the scriptures that could help us build a bridge between the two. If only there were something in the Bible that could name for us what's going on and then give us an avenue with which that vehicle could drive down freely. Insert lament. Laments are usually best found in the Psalms, but they're really all over the Bible, even starting in Genesis 15, as we'll see. The people of God lamented. They cried out. They asked for God to intervene. You see the prophets lamenting that the people of God had rebelled and they weren't what they were and the nation was forfeiting its privilege to bring light to the Gentiles because of their sin. And the prophets lamented. The psalmists lament. They lament because of personal sin. Oh God, I'm not who I want to be. Forgive me, heal me. Oh God, we're not who we want to be. Forgive us. Heal us. They lament because of sickness. Oh God, if you don't intervene, surely death may find me or death may find my loved one. Intervene, please. Jesus lamented. Oh, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, he wept. Jerusalem, Jerusalem, how I have longed to gather you as a mother hen gathers her chicks, but you would not. 
He wept for Lazarus. Lament is all over the Bible. And I think if we could learn to lament well, we may just be more whole people and we may pass on blessing instead of burden to those that we love. And we may show the watching world that this is really a community you would like to be a part of. A lament is a passionate expression of grief or sorrow. It means to express sorrow, mourning, or regret for, often demonstratively. In the International Standard Bible Encyclopedia, it describes lament like this. The Hebrew words could describe beating the chest. It could describe being in the dark. Another Hebrew word described it as being dirty or unattended to because the person lamenting would often change out their normal clothes for burlap or sackcloth, rough on the skin, and they would burn fire and take the ashes or dirt and put it on their head. They would often fast as a sign of their great loss and their great struggle or as a sign of the intensity of their prayer. God, you've got to intervene, and I'm showing you how serious I am about this, how desperate I am about this, and they would lament. People lamented loudly and often bitterly. The king even, the king even could lead a national lament, one where the people of God corporately said, we are going to lament together. Now think about this. Think about the last two years in your own life and in our world and in our country as I read this next sentence. Death, calamity, devastation by war, consciousness of sin, and intense sickness brought about reason for lament. Friends, I wonder if part of the turmoil in the culture that we see at large is potentially because we have to learn how to lament better. To be able to take that pain and hurt that many of us have experienced and the world has experienced in the past few years and to be able to put it in a proper, healthy avenue to say, oh, this is what we do with this. Instead, I think what's happened is you've got a lot of hurt people hurting people. And that's difficult. And so how do we lament well? And what would it look like if we were to lament? And what is a lament? What is a lament? So the book of Psalms, the title, as, as you see it in English, is Psalms. In Hebrew, it's Tehillim. Everybody say that with me, Tehillim. Very good. I'm going to need a little more, okay, a little more cat. Tehillim. Oh, rabbi is proud. Tehillim simply means praises. It simply means praises. I said this week in sermon prep, I said, laments are not often what people think. Laments are not a prelude to worship. They are worship. And I said that. And I was really confident about what I said. But Pastor Trevor sitting across the table, he looked at me and goes, why? And I thought to myself, how dare you challenge my assertion, Right? And I backpedaled a little bit. I was like, what do you mean why? Because I said so. That works with my kids. It doesn't work in sermon prep. <laughs> and so I thought to myself, okay, I really got to answer this question. Why are laments worship and not preludes? Where sometimes we're like, oh, we got to get all that stuff out of the way so we can focus on uh, really praising God. You know what I mean? 
but laments our praise because the title of Psalm means praises. And did you know that there are more Psalms of lament than any other type of Psalm in all 150 Psalms? More than a psalm of praise, more than a psalm of trust, more than a psalm of thanksgiving, more than a kingly psalm, more than a messianic psalm, more than any other psalm is the psalm of lament. Laments are praise in a minor key. Laments are praise in a minor key. I'm going to make my way over here to the piano slowly. Sometimes I trip on the carpet, by the way. If we're going to build a chord, we're going to need three notes. And when you're going to build a major chord, you're going to build it with different intervals between these three notes. You're going to have a root note. I'm just going to stay in the key of C because there's no flats or sharps in that key. So you're going to have the root note. And then if you're going to build a major chord, you're going to need a major third. So you're going to go up to a major third. And then if you're going to add the top to make it an actual chord, you're going to add a minor third on top of that. Okay? Major. Major sounding, happy sounding, laments are praise in a minor key. If you're going to change this to a minor chord, do you know what has to change? It's just the middle, middle note by a half step. It's just a half step. It's got the same root. It's got the same fifth. But it's just a half step lower in the middle. Laments or praise. It's all part of the same thing. They're praise in a minor key. Psalm 13 says this. This is a, one of David's laments. Listen to his anguish and listen to some of the words that he says in this. I'm going to read this and then I'll just give us uh, briefly what it looks like to lament well. Psalm 13. How long, Lord? Will you forget me forever? How long will you hide your face from me? How long must I wrestle with my thoughts and day after day have sorrow in my heart? How long will my enemy triumph over me? Look on me and answer, Lord my God. Give light to my eyes or I will sleep in death. And my enemy will say, I have overcome him. And my foes will rejoice when I fall. But I trust in your unfailing love. My heart rejoices in your salvation. I will sing the Lord's praise, for he has been good to me. You notice the crying out that David is experiencing the absence of God. His intensity shows up in Hebrew poetry by repeating itself. How long? How long? Forever? Where are you? Why do you hide your face from me? You need to act. You need to answer. I, you have to come through. How long must I wrestle and have sorrow in my heart? A lament is a personal cry for God to intervene. It's a crying out for God to act, for God to show himself faithful. Maybe we feel God's distance, we lament. Maybe we experience our own sin and need to repent, we lament. Maybe it's sickness, sorrow, all of these uncomfortable things, this anger, this frustration, all of these things, we bring them together as God's people and we lay them before God, and that's a lament. That's a lament. I would argue that 
because we live in this fallen world, a lament is less like a one-off and it's more like a lifestyle. So what would it mean for us to lament well? First, lamenting well bears witness to a broken world. Lamenting well bears witness to a broken world. We live in a world east of Eden where God did originally say everything, all of being physical, eating and drinking and having fellowship and leisure and sexual intimacy in the marriage bed and play, laughter, all of these things, these are fantastic. It is good. It is very good. And then we know that sin crept in. And sin and death, like a parasite, attached themselves to God's good creation and his good creatures. And everything that is, is marred by sin and death. And you and I know that now, east of Eden, thorns and thistles. Thorns and thistles. And we feel it every day in our work life, in our physical bodies, in our mind, in our heart, in our core relationships in our marriage relationship, in our grandparenting, with our children. We feel the thorns and thistles everywhere. And we know that this world is not as it should be. It's not as it should be. I don't quite understand the popular sentiment that's coming from certain places that says, this is exactly how it's supposed to be. We just got to get a little better. Let's open our eyes. This world is broken, and I am broken. I'm a part of this broken world. And when we lament well, we actually bear witness to that truth. Oh, no, 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 no. This is not as it should be, friends. We are in need of something and someone bigger to come from outside of us and fix this mess. Matthew 11, 17 says this. This is Jesus. This is a great little poem here. We played the pipe for you, and you didn't dance. We sang a dirge, and you didn't mourn. We played the flute. We played a happy song, and you didn't dance. We played a funeral dirge, and you didn't mourn. Your life and the rhythms of your life was out of cadence with the kingdom. And one of the reasons he says this is because they were accusing John the Baptist The religious leader said, John the Baptist, yeah, he came and he didn't go to dinner parties and he didn't drink any wine. And so he was possessed by a demon. But the son of man, Jesus, he's coming. He's going to a lot of dinner parties. He's eating and he's drinking wine. He's a glutton and a drunkard. And Jesus said, your reality is upside down, friends. You're out of step with the truth. You're out of step with real reality. The way you see it and the way you're experiencing it is not in alignment with how it really is, with how God sees it. And when we lament well, we look out at the world and say, yeah, it's broken. I'm broken. And we bear witness to that. And that's very in tune with the reality that we experience. But when we deny that, We do all sorts of damage to ourselves and potentially others. It's like trying to balance on a beach ball. Ha ha. You're like, where did that come from? Ha For my next illustration, (laughs) and I know what you're thinking. No, I'm not going to hit this out to you so that you can keep it afloat. No. Have you ever tried? (laughs) Oh. 
Have you ever tried, I sense the sarcasm in your, <laughs> to, to balance on a beach ball in the pool? You ever tried that? You, know, you wrap your arms around it and you get on it. You guys, you guys are like, yeah, I've tried that. And you get on top of it and you're thinking you got it for a little bit, a little bit, and, and you, you get a, finally get on it, and you start going side to side, or maybe back and forth, and maybe it's really quick, or maybe it's just a few seconds, but all of a sudden, it's going to come afloat, and you're going to be dunked under the water. That's what it's like when we try to deny what's going on in our heart, all the sorrow, all the pain. It's like trying to balance on a beach ball. It's like trying to push it down. Oh, I don't want to feel that. We're going to sweep that under the rug. Okay, I'm just going to deny it. That didn't really happen. I know they didn't say that because if they really said that, that would break my heart. And I don't really know what to do about that. So we're going to take that and we're going to stuff it down and we're going to push it. And we're going to work really, really hard at, at holding on to that, stuffing it down. But all of a sudden, our lives get topsy-turvy. Our emotional life gets a little topsy-turvy. Maybe it starts leaking out in ways that, you know, we don't like. We don't want to do that. And then before we know it, we're upside down. Dr. Viscott, in his book, Emotional Resilience, after listening to countless hours of patience, uh, stories, and pain, he basically concludes this. If you tell the truth about your life, it will heal itself. If you tell the truth about your life, it will heal itself. And lamenting well requires a ruthless and radical honesty with oneself before God. Lamenting well also bears witness to a big God. It bears witness to a big God. God had promised Abraham that he was going to be uh, blessed, that he was going to have offspring, and they were going to become a great nation, and that nation was going to be a blessing to all nations of the world. And yet, when he was promised that, uh, he had to wait a really long time before he actually had a child. So God comes to him uh, in Genesis 15 and says to him, after this, the word of the Lord came to Abraham in a vision, do not be afraid, Abram. I am your shield, your very great reward. But, you know, remember, it's been a long time since Abram had heard from God and he hadn't had this promise come through yet. They're still barren. In fact, barrenness is a constant and consistent lament in the Old Testament. But, Abram said, sovereign Lord, what can you give me since I remain childless and the one who will inherit my estate is Eliezer of Damascus? God, you haven't come through yet. Where are you? You promised I would really like for you to act. And he goes on for about four verses here and he states his case to God. Almost all commentators on Genesis 15 agree that there is a tone of complaint in the Hebrew text. That Abraham is, is lamenting before God. Laments are often called complaints. That he is complaining about a situation to God. Matthew Henry in his commentary on Genesis 15 puts it this way. Though we must never complain of God, yet we have leave to complain to him. And to state all our grievances, it is ease to a burdened spirit to open its case to a faithful and compassionate friend. Is our God that big? Can he take it? 
Do you hear the way that Abraham and Moses and David and these covenant leaders of the faith spoke to God? They actually spoke like he was big enough to take it and that he wasn't just going to turn around and criticize them or smite them or teach them a lesson. Like, no, my God's big. He can handle this. He knows the state of the world that I'm living in. He can take this. Is our God that big? Or do we feel the need to come to God in prayer like we're going out on a first date? That we get our spiritual makeup on and we get our best, finest dress on or our finest stars and blue shirt on for him. And we get, oh, I've, I've learned some of the, the, the lingo that God likes to talk, and I've learned some of the vocabulary, and I know what he likes to hear, and so I'm going to bring my best self and step into this thing, and oh, okay, it's nice to meet you. Don't, you. don't you like to hear all this stuff? And I wonder if God sometimes just says, hey, I love you to death, and I'm really glad that you showed up, but hold on a second. Give me the real you. Give me all of you. The whole you. I can take it. Uh, one of our, our daughters actually called me out the other day on my parenting. <laughs> you ever been called out as a parent by a kid? How fun is that? And, or, or a grandparent, and uh, you, you've been called out like, hey, you know, I don't really like this. This, this isn't going well, or this didn't go well. Well, thank you. You can file a complaint with HR. <clears throat> but they called me out. They called me out, and it was something that I actually thought we did pretty well on, and we're doing pretty well on, so it was a core value of my heart. And when they called me out, I said in my head, don't be defensive, don't be defensive, don't be defensive, I want to create conversation, don't be defensive, but my heart couldn't do it. And I wish I could tell you that I was big enough in that moment not to be defensive, not to get a little bit like, oh yeah, well, here's what we did that went well. And not to prove my point and prove my case, but I wasn't big enough. But I'm very confident that God's not like that. That he is big enough. That he has no ego, so he doesn't need to prove himself. When people trust in a loving heavenly father, they feel confident to place their needs before him. Dr. Russell Moore, well-known Christian leader, tells this story in his book, Adopted for Life. Him and his wife were going to orphanages in Eastern Europe, and then they were in the process of adoption. They were pursuing in different orphanages, and they recorded this, that one of the things that was the most strange experience for them was the silence in the nurseries. The silence in the nurseries. The babies in the cribs never cried. Not because they never needed anything, but because they had learned that no one cared enough to answer. Children who are confident of the love of a caregiver cry. Children of God who are confident in the unfailing love of our Heavenly Father cry. And we cry out again and again and again and again because his patience never runs out. Lamenting well testifies that God's big. Lamenting well shapes us into genuinely joyful people. You may be thinking to yourself at this moment, man, you must not be really up for happiness, Chad. Oh, that's not, that's not true. 
and I, I love joy, and I think we should pursue joy. It's just that I think this. I think for so long, the church in the West has been plagued with the pseudo joy. I think it's a fake joy. It's a joy that people really want to feel and we really want to have, but we work so hard to try to put it on like a mask, and then it comes off feeling like, I don't know, forced. And we work really, really hard at it so that we get so tired and it seems like we're spiritually exhausted by trying to be happy. When I would argue that if we will but allow grief to shepherd us well, going through the valley of the shadow of death leads us to a deep and authentic joy. A deep joy that we get to experience that sometimes doesn't even need words. It's silent. And sometimes words come like shouts and exclamations. Lamenting well shapes us into a genuinely joyful people because we know, we know that to push down one part of the heart is to push down all parts of the heart. And so to deny these places of the heart is actually to push down any proper authentic experience of joy in this world. So we have to bring them all before God. Then and only then do we get to experience genuine joy. So David, he writes this psalm, and he's carrying this burden on his shoulders, but guess what? He's not alone, so he comes into the community of faith, and this is the brilliant thing about laments, is they were never meant to be only alone and sung alone. They would be sung corporately, so now, guess what? David's song becomes Israel's song. What does that mean? David's pain becomes Israel's pain. So when we are lamenting, we're bringing this burden, but we're not shouldering it alone because we come to the people of God and we start to lament well. And guess what? Even though I'm not going through that experience, and that's not necessarily my story right now, I begin to shoulder this burden with you and we begin to carry it together. And now it lessens the burden. And then we all get to sing because our pain is shared collectively and our laments are shared collectively before God. That's what the community of faith is about. That we mourn with those who mourn and we rejoice with those who rejoice. And then and only then when we do that well, I think the watching world begins to get word of that and they start to ask themselves, what kind of community tells the truth and lifts each other up and is honest with each other and is compassionate with each other? What type of community comes alongside and said, that's not my story, but I will bear this burden with you as long as it is yours to bear. And then we even out that burden. And by evening out that burden, and then and all, and then all of a sudden we start to experience, and we may be surprised, as C.S. Lewis said, by joy. Oh, I don't, whew, I don't carry that anymore. Not like I did. But I trust in your unfailing love. I will sing praise because you've been good to me. You see, once he laments, then he's actually free to be genuinely filled with praise. Hmm. Jesus said it like this, John 16, 20, very truly I tell you, you will weep and mourn while the world rejoices. You will grieve, but your grief will turn to joy. He's talking about the disciples' experience of his death and crucifixion and his resurrection, but I think he's also talking about the ways of the heart. He knows that in order to get to the light of joy, we must pass through the darkness of grief. 
You will grieve, and then your grief will turn, turn to joy. It's the strangest, strangest thing, and many of you have experienced it. It's the strangest thing to lament well, and you think, oh, I'm never going to experience joy, and I hate feeling this pain, and it's so hard to do, and then all of a sudden, you're surprised by joy, and it's authentic, and it's deep. Lastly, lamenting well helps others flourish. Lamenting well shapes us into joyful people. Lamenting well helps others flourish. Pete Scazzaro, uh, is, he, he's a pastor. He was a pastor and uh, still is, and he's written several books, and he wrote a book uh, called Emotionally Healthy Spirituality. The book was birthed out of some really hard experiences, though. He had a church, it was a thriving church, and they had a Spanish service, and they had about 250 people in this Spanish service. Little did he know that one day he showed up, and there had been a church split. He had no idea. So there was 200 people in that Spanish service who just left. They were gone, and now he had 50 people in that service, and uh, he felt betrayed by the person who incited that split and took them and started another church. That set him on kind of a, some backpedaling for about a year, and then all of a sudden, his wife comes to him a year later, and she says to him, I'm leaving your church. And he said, what? And she said, the things that you talk about from the pulpit are not the things that I see in you behind closed doors. I'm leaving the church until we get some help and until you get some help. And that sent him on a very painful journey. It sent him into what some could say the process of uncovering some of those uncomfortable emotions that he wanted to deny for a very long time, but they were getting in the way. They were hurting people around him. His modus operandus of denial was actually harming those he cared about most. And he wrote Emotionally Healthy Spirituality, and one of the taglines of that book is, you cannot be spiritually mature and emotionally immature. And when we learn to lament well, we are growing in emotional and spiritual maturity so that we can set others up around us for success. I remember a season in my life, about 2009, 2010, where I started to see some of my own pain come out and hurt my family. And I began to see it impact my wife, and I began to see it impact my kids. And I thought to myself, this is not who I want to be. This is not what I want to do. I've got to figure this out. I was hurting some of the people I cared about the most in this world. And so I went into counseling. Because I couldn't find this, an, an avenue for lament, I went into counseling, and I began a 10- to 11-year journey on trying to untangle my pain and my hurt and trying to feel sorrow and sadness and trying to even grasp what that was like and what do I do with that and how do I reconcile that as a believer? And I'm not up here to tell you that, you know, I've figured it all out and I'm perfectly healed and healthy and all that sort of thing, but I will say that I've grown more free and I will say that I've grown better at lamenting. And I want to say this to us. If we don't let God transform our pain, we'll transfer it. If we don't let God transform our pain, we will transfer our pain to our families, kids, grandkids, loved ones, those closest to us. If we don't process it, we'll pass it on. This is one of the things that in Exodus talks about generational sins. It's this impact of generation to generation. If we don't deal with it well, we'll just dump a burden on the next generation instead of setting them up with blessing. 
So lamenting well helps others flourish. You may not know exactly how to do it. I don't always get it right. I don't always know how to do it either. Maybe it's a simple prayer. God, teach me how. Teach me how to lament. I see it in the scriptures. I see that it's true. I want to be a person who grows more in in wholeness. Teach me how to do that. And when we lament well, I believe, and when we pray that, I believe God will honor that prayer. I believe he will teach us. I believe he will show us. So let me just close with this. I've tried to cast vision for what lamenting well could be like and could do. Let me just kind of close with this thought. If you find yourself in a need to lament, find an outlet. Find an outlet. Now, ideally, as the community of faith, we should be coming to this place and we should be singing some laments. But, uh, it's a personal lament, there's not a lot of songs in the last several decades that are laments. They don't necessarily give us that space to say, life's messy, life's confusing, I need God. I'm hurting, I'm broken, I need help. We're going to sing one in just a moment, but if we can't reach the ideal, we still have to find pathways for our laments. So find your outlet. Maybe it's personal prayer. Maybe it's journaling. Maybe you're like, wow, I've really been playing pretend with God, and I'm I, I just need to be more honest in my prayer life. I'm going to do that. Maybe you found some music that helps you lament. Maybe you found some songs, the sorrowful songs of the heart, and they help you tap into those places, and you need to listen to it and feel it and go there. I would encourage us to find someone around us who we can lament with. Lament is always best in community. Who's that one or two persons? Maybe it's a spouse. Maybe it's a close friend. Maybe it's a family member who you say, you know what? You don't judge me. You don't criticize me. And you're able to hold all the 10,000 pounds of me. I'm just going to let my soul be born to you. Who's that person or that group? I'll say this as well. We have some great opportunities to lament at Mount Horeb. We have some great ministries. Grief share. That's a great ministry. People can come and lament together. Divorce care. It's a great ministry. People can come and lament together. We have Stephen's ministers who will walk alongside people and listen to them and be Christ to them. Our staff wants to lament with you, to hear you, to walk with you. When we do this well, we actually embody the fullness of who God really is. And it's one of the most attractive things to the watching world. And they think, I would love to be a part of that type of community. Let's pray. Father, thank you so much for your scriptures. God, thank you that you're a big God, that we don't have to perform for you or be anybody else. Try to be something that we're not. Father, thank you that you invite us to give you our whole heart. Not just the parts that are comfortable and easy to feel, but the parts of us that we'd rather not bring to you. Give us the faith and courage to do that. 
Father, some of us are walking alongside with someone right now who is in a season of lament. Help us walk well with them. Give us words to say. Give us tears for their tears. Father, you're the good shepherd. You know exactly how to shepherd us. And I pray that we would submit to your leading and your guidance. Help us to be still and to trust you. Amen.